Welcome to NashDev, a podcast about software engineering and the Nashville developer community. Well, this week we have something a little different. It's a conversation I recorded with teacher and philosopher turned programmer Evan Roan. I caught up with Evan a few weeks ago at Portland Brew, a coffee shop, so you'll hear their espresso machine and so on. It'll be just like you were there. Okay, here goes. Right now I'm working on a team uh, that is dealing with uh, automated email workflows, uh, and right now we're we're basically working on feature to, you know, giving the user the ability to conditionally send uh, this email campaign or that email ca- campaign based on a user's behavior. Yeah. So what kind of code is it? Is it like Python? Sure. Yeah. So right now I'm working on a React app on, it's, it's kind of a, we're calling it a Franken app uh, around the house because it's it's backbone marionette. <laughs> and then we have this, this one div that's a React app with Redux and we bind state between backbone and Redux. And it's it's a little bit hideous, but it's working pretty well. Wow. Hang on. So wait a minute. So, yeah. so the, the, the React app, Okay, there's a problem that I've got, which is that I've only kind of heard about React. Okay. I've not, I've not really used it. Yeah. So, um, can, can you tell me, like, you said your binding state between the two things. Well, like, what actually does React want, and what are you, what are you doing to accomplish that? Sure. So, React is just a, a library from Facebook that renders data to a view based on either act, whatever, whatever sort of actions that, that you care about. And so the, the binding actually happens between a Redux app, which is Redux is just a single direction event loop uh, that holds state. Basically what we're doing is anytime there's an update on the Redux uh, state machine, if that's the right word for it, we take those changes, we put them on the backbone view. If there's changes on the backbone model, then we bring them back. Ideally, though, that should all just be one that should, that state should just be in one place, um, but for the sake of adding the feature in a timely fashion, we just sort of bolted it on. Yeah, I mean it happens a lot, right? Right. <laughs> so um, does does Backbone it has to have its own state? The model has to be a Backbone model. Yes. Okay, and in React, is it different? React will take whatever you give it. Oh. As long as it's a JavaScript object. That seems useful. How did you get into programming? First time. I tried programming, I think I was in middle school, and I had a good friend who was running a Lord of the Rings website when the films were starting to come out, uh, and he and I would leak photos and clips and stuff of the set uh, as they were coming out, just to, you know, provide maximum spoilers to the interested parties. So, So that got me into a little bit of JavaScript and a little bit of PHP. So that was my first exposure. Uh, for a long time after that, you know, being interested in Lord of the Rings and English literature, um, I ended up going to school and studying English, uh, which then got me into philosophy. Um, and then I, I think Lord of the Rings is kind of a gateway drug into that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think Tolkien is sort of like doing pagan Catholic philosophy in <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. It's cool. So, so yeah, anyway, I ended up on this grand philosophy adventure for a long time, and I ended up teaching... Yeah. Teaching where? When I lived in Texas, I taught at Houston Community College. I also taught at a small Episcopal school there for a while, too. That's another interesting story. I think community college professors are horribly underpaid, and so that's one reason why I left that. Yeah, I think it's a really important institution, and 
I would just love to see more political momentum behind fueling our community colleges. But yeah, being a philosopher, not really good uh, career path, even though it's really interesting and fulfilling. Teaching at a high school level was cool for me because at that school I was able to teach a philosophy class to 12th grade students, so it's pretty cool. We actually got to do a huge breadth of the history of philosophy um, in that class. Um, yeah, at least 3,000 years, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so. So, so what did you start out with? I mean, that's just like... That. Yeah, we started with the pre-Socratic philosophers, you know, Thales, Anaximander. Kids love that, like all this water. Like they will, like you throw that at them and it's so absurd that you actually get a really good conversation, right? But that in underlying truth that like maybe all of these material things that we experience, there's something similar. So there's some truth in what Thales tells us when he says all is water, you know, and they can kind of grasp onto that. It's actually a really good place to start. So, so, (laughs) so yeah, how did I get into programming? I got to a point with teaching high school since that was... Uh, the most stable life I, I had for myself at that point in time, that some of the the parts of, of dealing with pre-college students uh, is that they have parents, and those parents have interests. And, you know, once upon a time, I in an English class, I assigned this anthology with some, some feminist literature in it. And I think the worst thing I made them read was Mary Wollstonecraft, which was like, I don't know... I think her thesis was like women should vote or something, which seems like a good idea. But there was some other more edgy stuff in in the anthology and uh, a parent really did not appreciate that. You know, it was just experiences like that that made me say that like, this is not how I want to be spending my time all the time. And so around that time, I was also kind of interested in just, just kind of pursuing my own like philosophical research projects. And I ended up kind of coming back into formal logic and there was something fulfilling about like exploring theorems and syllogisms and you know rules of inference and like thinking about like why these things even work that reminded me of way back in the day at the beginning of this journey when I was fiddling around with with PHP in in the 90s (laughs) so and and I thought you know, I have an aunt who who's essentially her own uh, her own agency, you know, software agency. And I was like, you know what? She always she's always saying, you know, Evan, <laughs> I have this client. Can you do this work for me? And I'm like, no, I haven't done this in years, aunt, antique. Um, <laughs> um, but I had this sense from her that like I could do it, and if I if I did, there would be work for me. About at that time, I moved to Nashville to be with the person who's now my wife. Yeah, I came here for love. Um, it's fun to say that. So around that time, I came to Nashville, and I was looking for work. And that work that I was looking for was teaching. Um, and today I can say this. I think today I can see that I, in the interviews I got at certain schools around town, I think I just didn't bring the enthusiasm into the interview. It was like, yeah, check it out. Check out my resume. Yeah, I got all those kids college credit. Isn't that pretty cool? And I was just kind of resting on my laurels and not being like, yes, I want to do this here. Were you interviewing at private schools? Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, so pretty much I was shooting myself in the foot and not realizing it. And I was also living off of my teacher's summer paycheck, which was going to run out, right? Um, so I was just running out of runway and I was in a really terrible emotional state. Like here I am, 
I'm just, you know, I'm going to end up panhandling, you know, like God bless those folks that do that, but that's not how I want to live my life. So yeah, I just, I came across Nashville software school and what, what it's another Nashville software school story. I I didn't know that. (laughs) So I came across, (laughs) so I came across Nashville software school and they, you know, I was really down on myself and I did not think anything good was going to be happening in my life because I had made all these choices that had kind of led me to a dead end. But I had a great talk with John Wark and he was like, yeah, he was, John Wark changed my life. Yeah. Um, he was a great, he was a great pivot point in my life meeting him. Yeah. And, and so, so what I think, software I, like, I, I feel like we're building John Wark up to be this like angel who descends out of the clouds, but he's actually this like really just earthy, practical, uh, like normal guy. Programmers are just people, machines that turn coffee into code. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So yeah, sure. He has that normal guy exterior, but I think inside he has, he has a sense of mission, um, to like turn lives around. So I recognize that in my life I've had incredible privilege and I've enjoyed that immensely. And it's made, you know, it's enriched my life in a lot of different ways, but yeah, humanities don't pay that well. And in my life, I also, I mean, I, I pursued humanities because of sort of that heart fulfilling side that they have. But what I didn't realize until I had just dived into into software development is that this kind of work is similarly satisfying to me in the same way that I get to the bottom like if I you know if I'm working in a logic book and it's like hey prove this theorem here's your premises go if I get to the end of that theorem I feel great it is incredibly rewarding whereas it's I have the same experience with code you know when I when I when I write a module and it returns what I want it to return consistently it's passing tests I get that same sense of satisfaction I think that, um, but but it sounds like, I mean, you say that humanities don't pay well, but it seems like what got, what kind of shoved you out of humanities was not about money. It was about like the other things that come with that job. I completely agree. Right. But there are things that come with a programming job too. I also completely agree. (laughs) Right. Right. I guess any career has its baggage that does or doesn't reach your limit. I reached my limit in the teaching profession, definitely. Yeah, well, it's got more than its share, I think. True. Um, no, but I, so uh, as a philosopher, I think that the, I mean, if you talk about, I mean, I guess the stereotype of the philosopher is this either stoic or oblivious individual who. Uh, How many minutes late was I to this meeting? <laughs> well. <laughs> I could tell my my own story. Like, I wasn't ready until you got here, anyway. So, um, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but shouldn't philosophy make you like more able to cope with the grind of being a teacher or of uh, you know what like the bad stuff in your profession? Yeah, that's a really. I think that is an interesting question because I think it's true. I think personally, I draw a lot on. And I mean this in all seriousness. I draw a lot on the Stoic philosophers. I really like them, and. I'm leaning more towards the Roman Stoics. If you got to get specific here. But. Oh my gosh! So I I used to carry around the handbook of Epictetus. Sure. Yeah. And like give it to yeah, people because you can carry around five of them. 
<laughs> yeah, there's creepy shit in there about like <laughs> telling your child they're going to die as they go to sleep. Oh, it's not in that book. That's oh, the that's great not thing. The one? Okay. Well, so that's the philosopher, but it's not in that book. Oh, okay. Anyway, Epictetus, kind of dark. No, I, I get a lot out of the Stoics, but I think something really important in teaching is forming personal connections with every student, with every individual in the community. Um, and there's just so much personal connection to in, in so many different directions that if there is dissatisfaction, like the dissatisfaction I had, it pulls so many more directions. There's so much more. It, it's, it, 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 it sort of tortures the whole community. Yeah. Whereas I think that, say, for example, the team I'm on at Emma... Um, we have three engineers, one designer, one QA, one product manager. And so it's a relatively small, it's a small amount of relationships, comparatively speaking to what I had in a teaching environment. And it's, it's more modular. It's better factored. I'm sorry? It's more modular. It's better factored. Sure, yeah. Right, and every component is committed to being a mature adult. Right. <laughs> Whereas in a school, you are literally dealing with children and children will be children, and that's to be expected. And then sometimes their children, I'm sorry, not the children, sometimes the parents of the children behave in ways that you would hope an adult would not. Yeah, my mom was a middle school teacher, and to me that's the worst job in the world, like to deal with middle school-aged yeah. kids all the time. Yeah. But actually, actually it's the parents. Like that. Yep. All right, parents, be nice to teachers. <laughs> they love your kids too. <laughs> So, uh, but what I wanted to talk about today is philosophy and programming, how that's related. Yeah. So, you want to just add a little bit? Sure. So, in my experience at National Software School, I kept trying to draw upon my experiences before, <laughs> before diving headfirst into programming that would give me some kind of advantage in what I was trying to do. And so, a couple things that I would think about were... Something Aristotle says, um, I, I think it's in Nicomachean Ethics, uh, it's kind of his main book on ethics, which is this question, like, are we going to or from first principles? Uh, Wait, what does that mean? Oh, sure, that, that's a good question. So going so to, to, an, to Aristotle, a first principle is a formal idea. It's a formal definition of a concept, a class, an idea. And so a mistake that I think I made early on yeah, at the software school is that I was too platonic like I was I was my idea was to come up with an ideal solution to a problem and then just make it happen and what ended up happening is that with my uh, immature skills I was writing code that was just too abstract and didn't even come into contact with the problem that was happening this is like some bad parody of philosophers writing code but it actually happened so so what i learned is to listen to aristotle and aristotle is interested in particulars right he wants to say what do people actually do what does courage look like in a warrior what does courage look like in a basket weaver and from particulars let's look around and see what courage really is so i think going to first principles instead of from first principles really helped me get my projects done. <laughs> that's actually super cool. Like, I, so I, 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 what you say about like writing code that's too abstract? Hmm. I don't know. It seems like that's the rare error. Like the, the usual error is failing to notice possible abstractions. Like failing to notice unifying concepts. 
it totally depends on the person. There are totally people who will just like go completely off the deep end the other way, and that's me. Like I, I, I will, I will do too many abstractions. Or, or, or maybe by now, I've spent enough years fighting that instinct that now I'm actually on the opposite end. <laughs> if we're gonna talk about philosophy and computer science, I guess we are right. Like I'm, I'm the representative of philosophy right now. And I have a strong interest in computer science, and you're you're being the representative of computer science with a strong interest in philosophy. Should we? <laughs> you just you just turned this thing right around. <laughs> Should we take a moment to say what these things are? Oh uh, wait, what like what what is computer science? Computer science, Jason. Gosh. Okay. So there's fields of study around programming, right? And computer science is the more philosophical side or the mathematical side of uh, of the science of programming. So it's not so much about the human practice of building programs or like what you have to do to do that well and effectively. It's more about, you know, assuming you actually have the intent to build the right thing, then, you know, what are the algorithms? What are the concepts that make up programs? <laughs> so, um, so computer science, like, it's easier to just say what the subject matter is, like give particulars. Uh, computer science is about, like, what if I want to write a program that translates Python into machine code, right? Well, there, how does that problem break down? There's parsing, there's optimization, there's, there's something called lowering where you actually are translating from a high-level language down to a lower-level language. And each of those things is like kind of its own field of study, and it ha- people write papers about better ways to do those things, and there's a body of knowledge like that extends over decades. So that's... That kind of thing. That's computer science. Cool. I'm yeah. I'm impressed that you did that in less than five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yet yet too long for the radio. <laughs> well, right. okay. But then, what is philosophy? So you got the much harder question. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a terrible question, and I totally set myself up to be here. So I think philosophy. I'm going to paraphrase someone. Philosophy is an incredibly obstinate effort to think clearly. Um, so I'm paraphrasing William James. William James is talking about metaphysics, but that's neither here nor there. So that's one cool definition of philosophy. I've been enjoying the works of this other fellow, Pierre Addo, who's a French writer. Uh, he likes to write about ancient philosophy, and he defines ancient philosophy as... So James is defining it, you know, it's an incredibly obstinate effort to think clearly. So that's purely mental. That's purely theoretical. But Addo typifies ancient philosophy as a way of life and i really like this and i'm kind of interested in you know once i articulate this definition seeing how that might map onto our practice as people who write code so ado says that ancient philosophy is a way of life performed in communities with a common conception of the good who engage in morally and spiritually edifying practices in pursuit of that common conception of the good so there's, there's nothing in there about arguing no, I want to talk about arguments, but we can put that off. But it says it says like a community of practice, right? Yeah, yeah. So so basically everyone. So like a great example of this were the Epicureans. They literally lived in a commune. They were the first hippie commune in the Western world, um, and they lived together and they grew vegetables and they ate them together and they enjoyed a little wine and a little cheese, but not too much. And they attempted to have deep relationships deep friendships with one another and that's 
sort of the, their their path to the good. Um, yeah, but it's also kind of like a little bit of a cult, wasn't it? It, it sure it was pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. They didn't eat beans because of uh, not radio appropriate reasons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you were, we're more like we're more like cable. So yeah, you can yeah, totally we're like, say we're it. like the HBO of podcasts. Yes. So yeah, basically they, they thought that like if you cut open a raw bean, it kind of smells like uh, semen. So they thought that you were like doing something strange by eating it. Okay. <laughs> um. So yeah. So yeah, I guess what you're saying, I guess, this is really true. Is that the Epicurean like community of practice? That practice was a lot more than logic and arguing and. Sure. Sure. I mean, the Epicureans, I mean, their, their path to the good was like, you, you don't fear the gods. Cause like, can you take Zeus seriously? He's, he basically, like if he meets a woman, he either tries to sleep with her or rape her. Right. Can you respect these gods? No, no, don't respect these gods. These are not exemplars of moral perfection. Don't respect the gods. Don't fear the gods. Um, don't fear death. Right. Death is, and they have, a, they have a logical defense of why you shouldn't fear death because, you know, they're atomists, right? They think your body is made of atoms. And when those relationships between those atoms changes, then you don't have a life anymore and you're not experiencing death. So why would you fear death? And they think that evil is easy to avoid. Evil is, is the cry of the flesh, you know, to be cold, to be thirsty, to be hungry. And if you pursue good which is to satisfy your thirst to enjoy your sleep to eat the food that you need and no more then the good is easy to find so they they actually have a pretty well-defined conception of the good whatever their views are about beans yeah and so kind of interested in looking at this model of the sort of the philosophical practice of being a software engineer like what does it mean to be a software engineer and there are all you know there's the agile manifesto there's scrum there's all these methodologies that are interesting and helpful but in a way their philosophies and ado's definition in a way right no they absolutely are right yeah and where these philosophies meet at the interfaces of these philosophies is a lot of argument yes Sure, and, but it's in general like the idea is that programming is this community, you know, this thing that people do in communities that, and there's more to it than coding. Absolutely, I think Nashville seems to, and I've really only engaged in the programmer community here, but I feel lucky, I feel fortunate in a lot of ways that. You know, there's just so many meetups in town and everybody's very friendly and inclusive in my experience so far. It's kind of interesting. Um, when I first heard about the Nash Dev podcast, I was asking William Golden, like, what makes the Nashville developer community its own identity? Like, what typifies it, right? Why are they not Stoics or Epicureans or Aristotelians or whatever flavor, right? What's the flavor here? And so I think if we maybe see the Nashville dev community as a certain kind of way of life, uh, we might be able to move closer to defining it. What is your conception of the good in terms of programming then? Sure. I think, well, we just mentioned the Epicureans, so I'm making this up as I go, but that'll be a source of inspiration. We'll find it together. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously to me, something I saw in my life, I'm going back into something autobiographical now something i saw in my life is that my dad who i really like i love my dad he's great (laughs) i feel fortunate in that regard too he is very loving and caring and for many years he kept his job as a certified public accountant 
because it earns very well. And he did that for a long time. And at some point in his life, he gave up on that. Um, and he went to seminary. And ever since, he's been in Christian ministry, uh, which he finds much more fulfilling forming those relationships and and seeing how he can help people flourish so that's really neat but seeing that transition in my dad growing up made me attracted to something that was fulfilling and it's kind of interesting that in my life i've actually started with something that i thought would be really fulfilling and then i was like maybe i should do something that like earns a little better so it's really important to me to still have that goal so something i want in my philosophy as a way of life for programming in Nashville is is fulfilling work and so for me that means having a high standard for myself for the work that I do taking pride in my work understanding how my work impacts human beings in hopefully a positive way in having serious conversations with people who do work like mine or parallel to mine and uh, you know sort of staying on track with that yeah, I feel like I'm I'm getting to some kind of Silicon Valley platitude about like making the world a better place, but well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think the best the best code does. I mean, it makes people better. It makes society better. I mean, ideally, I don't know that we can predict what the effects of of the code we write will be, though. Yeah. So I meant to ask you this actually coming in: Is there philosophical work on like ethics? in a time of great uncertainty or unpredictability about the consequences of your actions? Yeah, totally. I'm not an expert in it, so unfortunately, I probably won't be able to tell you all you okay, want to know. But no, but, um, but like, pointers would be good. Of course, of course. Um, so yeah, there's a whole tradition around something called consequentialism and ethics. So just to throw out a couple names, there's a guy named Henry Sidgwick, um, there's John Stuart Mill, Jeremy Bentham. So yeah, the last... The last utilitarian who's still living is... Uh, he's, not the the last? he's not the last utilitarian. The last one that I had in mind who is still living and he's got some TED Talks and he's on some Netflix documentaries is a fellow named Peter Singer. Um, so he's, um, he's had some really interesting arguments around... Uh, you know, like being like moral reasons to be vegetarian, for example. Those are they're all utilitarians. Yes. So utilitarianism, as I understand it, is this like this notion that you you know, in deciding what's the best thing to do, you there's there's this kind of you know ethical calculus. You kind of add up the good effects and the bad effects, and and sure. and you figure you know you you're, <laughs> you're like some kind of. <laughs> venture capitalist like deciding like adding up the numbers and saying like what's the what's what the best what's got the best effects for the most people but then like what so i don't know so as, as kind of a more you know i don't know as, as a, i think for a computer scientist it's really hard to come at that and like get any like grip on the edges of that problem because it sounds cut like obviously well yeah i mean if i sat down with a pencil and had to like draw up a plan for doing good stuff that's exactly what i would write like what what is what is the argument against that the argument against engaging in utilitarian calculus yeah why wouldn't i well, um, i mean who else what are the other ethical schools i, I just don't know <laughs> um i think i think what you can do with a utilitarian calculus can be monstrous it can be pretty morally offensive you can come to some pretty morally offensive conclusions like scapegoating is a problem. Sure. Um, or uh, I think Singer, Peter Singer, this most recent figure I mentioned, who is most definitely still alive, 
at the recording of this episode. Um, he gives an example, I think, called the utility monster. So let's just say that Jason likes cookies and Evan likes cookies. Um, but let's just say over here on this other chair is Cookie Monster, right? Really likes cookies. He really liked cookie. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say I am satisfied to one unit of pleasure when I have one cookie. And Jason is satisfied to 1.1 units of pleasure per cookie. But since we're both people, we divide evenly. We each get one cookie off the platter. But Cookie Monster over here, Cookie Monster gets 10 units of pleasure per cookie. So if me, I, Evan, and Jason, and Cookie Monster are part of this circle of chairs community, how do we maximize the good and minimize the evil in this community? We give all the cookies to Cookie Monster. That makes Cookie Monster kind of a dick, but it is the right thing to do. And so if you start doing this in relation to, say, the operations of a hospital, um, you can come to some pretty monstrous conclusions. Okay, but then what? what is the... On the monster. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that. Okay, but what, what, like, what's sure. the alternative? You might be able to sanitize it somehow and put in parameters to make sure that we're not devaluing human lives to some unreasonable... Yeah, it, it feels like you're turning it into a different system by a complicated math. I mean, right, because if you, if you add in a term into your you know, equation that says, well, but people, need, people have a need to be treated fairly and even, you know, even-handedly, so we're going to add like, this algebraic term Sure. So yeah, yeah, you could write, if we're going to write, write a computer algorithm, we could loop over everybody present in the circle of chairs, feed them adequately, and then go back to Cookie Monster, since Cookie Monster wants the most cookies. Is that what you're saying? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, but a utilitarian calculus is really cool and fun and interesting. I have experimented with students when I when I explain this to them, and I say you experiment on your students. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean on like a chalkboard. Yeah. So what we would do is we would say um, my favorite example was reading Hamlet versus taking heroin, um, Hamlet or heroin. Um, <laughs> students really, I mean, they saw what I was doing there. They 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 understood that I wanted them to read Hamlet sometime because I think it's a great play. You take all the fun out of it. The students know, and all the learning too. The students know what the the answer that you want is. Well, sure. And just despite me, they they all they all embarked on showing me how taking heroin was better, um, and I politely disagreed with them. Um, <laughs> so so basically, the idea is like, what are the long term pleasures uh, versus short term pains related to each activity? So if you read Hamlet, you might have to sit down, drink some coffee, and concentrate through that Shakespearean English, maybe use a glossary or something. So there's a little bit of pain there, but turns out it's a great story. There's compelling characters. I don't know, somebody said it was a classic once or something. It's it's a great it's a it's a great work of English literature. So so there's there's a lot of right. So and, and right, once you're done reading Hamlet, you can give it to your friend for free. Right? So now that pleasure just got doubled, right? A paperback could cost you maybe a dollar at a used bookstore. Uh, so there's a low cost, high amount of pleasure. That pleasure can be replicated. Uh, whereas heroin, well, now you've got to do something illegal. you got to maybe rub shoulders with some shady folks. You have to get a syringe. I, 
I think that's hard. To I mean, do. it's like the, the right. long-term pains of oh, yeah. so now, now the, going that direction is. And, right. So all all the all the heroin things. Um, you might be having a great time under the influence, and and then afterwards. Yeah it's not so good, right? And this is all in a relatively short amount of time, and once you've used up your heroin, it's it's done. You have to get more. The utilitarian calculus works really well in a situation like that, I think, to push you towards reading great works of literature. <laughs> because... <laughs> Which was the whole point. I mean, come on, guys. Read your Shakespeare. So I think it works really well in situations like that. Um, well, like we have situations like that in software all the time. I feel like... Oh, shoot. You're going to need to back that up. <laughs> no, or, or, I mean, just, or just fill it in. Fill it in. Well, <laughs> I don't. Oh, well, okay. So writing tests is like the obvious one that comes to mind. Sure. Is that? I mean, you, you, oh, it's it's just that writing new code. Writing new code is the heroine of software engineering because it's this. It's the reason we all got into the field in the first place. It's like this feeling. It's so it's massively enjoyable, and it creates nothing but long-term pain <laughs> for everybody else. Right, you write you write a function and it didn't quite do what you wanted to do, so you have to write another function, and now that didn't quite do what you wanted it to do, and you're writing another function, and you find no. yourself chasing the function. It's it's more like this <laughs> that the the code that you have is this is whatever you carry with you. I guess the the, the cynics or like somebody I don't know. There's there is a Greek school that's, uh, that, that's that's very strictly opposed to owning anything, and that's that's exactly the attitude I've taken towards code. The, the code that you carry around is a is a cost. And the reason is because even if it's perfect, even if it does exactly what you want it to do, it's not going, the, the circumstances surrounding that could change. So it's not going to do what you want tomorrow. It's like changes in the world cause it to have bugs. Um, it's work. Keeping it alive is work. And, and its dependencies change out from under it. And so it has to adapt. To, you, know, you have to. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. So code is, is, is weight, and code is pain like in the, in the long term. So the less you have of it, the better. That's why, that's why I equate it to heroin. Wow. So if a green-filled module is, is heroin, and so much fun because you got to make this thing, what's Hamlet or, or broccoli for that matter? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I actually like broccoli. I mean, again, tests come to mind. I guess, I guess you know, using, using, some more, using a more restrictive language feels kind of like broccoli, like when I'm using a language like Haskell, which I only do for side projects, like I guess I haven't had the opportunity to use it for real work. It is very restrictive and I spend what feels like forever, and like in reality probably about two to three minutes, fighting the compiler just to get anything to even begin to run, you know? Because it won't let you start with all, there, there's this whole range of bugs and vagueness that Haskell just will not put up with. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I, th- I think that I, I don't know. I tend to think that it results in more correct programs. What else? I, I think that reading code and reading about code has this Hamlet aspect about it. Let me let me ask you a question. So, have you ever read any code and said, "Wow, this is this is really good code. I'm glad I read this." Yes. Like, because when when I read Shakespeare, it was always like it's it was work, but then. I was really glad that I'd done it. So can you tell me an example of code that you felt that way about? Oh, yeah. I was just thinking uh, Lodash, I think, is a probably a pretty good example of... What's that like? Well-written code. Uh, Lodash is just this nice library of JavaScript functions. 
it's a riff off of a previous library called underscore which does pretty much the same thing but lodash i think is it has more and is a little more efficient yeah just seeing how the authors of it build together lower level functions um, and use those to feed higher level functions and and always right you always pass in context and you always return a new object and it's really very sensible and well thought out and and i actually find it really useful to just like go through the documentation find some lodash function that i haven't had to use before and just mess around in the console until i've seen oh i can do this that and the other with it i find that really edifying to see solutions to problems that i haven't even faced yet i think that there is an aspect of programming where you learn by play it reminds me of in human development people kids who kids who play are, it, it affects it affects their development right and so there there's definitely like this enjoyable like non-broccoli aspect of programming that's really kind of fun um but but like actually reading the source code of Lodash, that is, that does strike me as like this reading Hamlet, eating your broccoli kind of thing. Because it's, what do you get from that? I mean, Lodash is inter- has this internal logic to it, this consistency, and you can see how it's designed around this one concept and worked. Great. I think that's really neat. Okay, so I mean, I guess I have one. I have one example too. Oh, by the way, there's a there's a book called Beautiful Code that is simply packed with examples exactly like this. I need to buy that. <laughs> it's great. Okay. You, you, you'll like it. So the, actually, the example that I have in mind is one of the examples in the book, um, although I had, I had read it before. Inside of Python, there is Python has a dictionary type, which is just like a key value store that's in memory. And the way that is actually implemented and stored in, in memory, I had read it, and uh, was not familiar with any of the concepts like beforehand. It's a hash table, so I learned like how hash tables work, and it has all these performance-related tricks because at the time it was written, basically every data, everything, everything in Python has a hash table inside of it. Like every object, the properties and their values are stored inside a hash table. It's some, it's still some of the best code that I've ever read, and I'm not. Like, I can't put in words why. It's just like Shakespeare. I can't tell you why exactly this story of the rents is important. I can articulate the Hamlet side of it. Like, when you you read Hamlet, I think maybe Hamlet was the second work of Shakespeare I read in high school. I think I read Romeo and Juliet and then Hamlet in, in 11th or 12th grade. But you do, even as a young person, even as a novice in Shakespeare, you have a sense that this is a work done by a mature master, not just someone who's going to be awesome when they when they're all grown up and they have some gray hairs but when this is this is the this is the master at work that you have a sense of that and uh maybe that's what you're articulating that's that is definitely like factually true of the python team and yeah right yeah i guess that's why i really enjoyed reading that code base also i I got to it before it got obscured by performance hacks over the years like there was some there was some performance trickery going on and that code has evolved since then and you know gotten more complicated i don't know i don't know if i read it again if it would still be simple enough to engage my brain the same way you know so what is virtue what does excellence look like for a programmer what does quality of life look like what does happiness look like what does moral responsibility look like? 
Larry Wall had a something quotable about virtues of programmers. Do you remember those? Do you know this? So Larry Wall was the inventor of Perl. I'm just going to pause and look it up. So the three virtues of a programmer, according to Larry Wall, um, were laziness, impatience, and hubris, uh, which I think is hilarious because I think I think I mean I think these are kind of true. He's of course being facetious, but in terms of laziness, like we 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 talk about the dry principle: don't repeat yourself. Um, that is what he's getting at with this. The lazy programmer automates things that he doesn't want to do again and finds general principles right, to avoid having to, to write the same code again. So, but this is not what you were getting at. It could be. <laughs> but you were, getting, you were getting at something else. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think like the, the virtue, or the excellence of a programmer, it might be laziness. And laziness is sort of like what you... It's like the anti-hero word, right? Sure. So the laziness could actually be that an excellent programmer looks for repeated patterns and abstracts them, right? So that they don't need to be repeated in the code. I mean, this is an attitude that was definitely pretty standard in the 80s and 90s of the, the, the excellence of a programmer is in writing good code. But no? I mean, I don't know. Did you have sure. something else in mind? Like, I really want to like, I I know, know what you think. I, I that... Yeah, it just seems so, it seems like too obvious, right? I don't know. Yeah, I guess then we have to ask what good code is, right? I, I, I kind of like, I like these three things. Impatience and hubris, to me, speak to the people relate, or the organizational related uh, virtues of a programmer. When you're impatient, you're, you're, you're routing around bad stuff in your organization or red tape, and you find ways to get things done. And I think that's important in a programmer too, and in, and the hubris is is necessary for a programmer to, you know, we we have interns at Mozilla sometimes and that that do amazing things because they don't have the preconceptions that we've got, and they don't know that things are impossible, so they just go do them. That's pretty great. Yeah. Okay. So I I don't know like these these things together I like I haven't looked at them in ten years but. Yeah. I uh, I can see. Th- I'm I'm the kind of person when I watch Star Wars, I like Obi Wan Kenobi. Like people will like Darth Vader because he's cool, but I like the good guys. I'm kind of boring like that. <laughs> Obi Wan's awesome. So when you tell me about hubris and laziness, I'm like, no, no, we need to cast these in 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 words with positive connotations. Um, but I think I like what we're getting at, though. I like the substance of what we're getting at. And I think to answer my first of those three questions about like what is the excellence of programming, I think there's got to be some retention of a childlike sense of wonder. And I think that's what you're talking about when you talk about these interns at Mozilla who like don't know better and they end up stumbling across something awesome because there's this childlike sense of wonder and they're like, yeah, we can do that. And then the... the what was the one other one? Impatience? I mean, I think, all right, let me, let me Obi-Wan that one. That one, I don't know, righteous indignation, right? <laughs> like, these rules are dumb, let's blow them up, you know? Yeah. yeah. It strikes me how much all three of those have to do with just recognizing that software is software mm-hmm. and that we can change it. Yes. Yes, it's not a marble statue, thank goodness. Yeah. Can we move to your next one? Yes. Questions? Yeah, let's move to the next one. So the second one was... There, there's a lot of different programmer cultures, right? Like the hermetic type, there's uh, your Silicon Valley type, there's your hot chicken eating Nashville pro-social people that I bump into a lot. Great folks. 
So obviously, just like an Epicurean, like a certain part of your life is dedicated to growing fruit or vegetables, right? And and we grow our vegetables by writing code. And so what is the appropriate part of your life for that, you know? For me, again, going back to my own life, like seeing seeing my dad's transition from an accountant to someone who works in Christian ministry is that the one of the coolest things is that he was around a lot. You know, he had an office at home where he would you know, he'd close the doors and work on his sermons or take private phone calls uh, behind those doors. But if you scraped your knee, you could bang on that door and dad would put alcohol and a Band-Aid on it, right? So th- I hope my kids don't hear this. <laughs> so, all right, so, so you're a parent. So it's, it's important to me to have room in my life for family. You know, I'm not a parent yet, but I want to be. I think there's, whatever, I have my own personal reasons for wanting to be a parent. But yeah, so... And of course, there's these, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, stereotype, of course, I'm sure there's some truth in it and maybe some falsehood too, but like that seems to be like you're programming 12 to 14 hours a day, right? And and your, your brain just gets into this, I don't know, and it, and it might be really excellent in its own way. If your brain is just processing code all the time, maybe you get really good at it. I have no idea. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Um, I want to have room to... Go to go to the park and enjoy the trees and and maybe you know play with my kids someday and, and that sort of thing. But finding the appropriate place in your life for you. And I think and I'm not trying to like to just brush off say what a 14 hour a day programmer does. I mean I think just you know going back to Arasol for a minute, what courage looks like for a soldier is different from what courage looks like in in me. If someone comes in here with a weapon, I'm out. Like I'm gone. Goodbye. See you later. I'm not fighting. I'm not going to be a hero today. But that's just me. That's what courage looks like in me. And so what... That's what courage looks like in the philosopher. You just had to. Or the programmer. Sure, sure. So there's... So yeah, I think I've got all my ideas out there. What do, what do you think? <laughs> hey, this is Rodney. We have some local conferences coming up with Call for Papers out. Coder Fair is returning and will be held on October 1st and 2nd. November will be held on November 20th and 21st. If you're interested in speaking or going to these, there will be links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This episode was edited for your listening pleasure by me, Rodney Norris, and Clark Buckner of Relationary Marketing.